This is Veterans Voices with Kevin Berger, memories and stories of Minnesota's Korean War veterans. How long were you in Korea total? I was there about nine months. The, the heaviest action occurred on my birthday on the 15th of February. Which 21. birthday? 21. Yeah. I visited Paul Overgaard at his home where he and his wife live. It's on a little lake outside the town of Albert Lee. He was raised in that area, went to a one-room schoolhouse, and was, uh, you know, in high school, I think, uh, maybe junior high during World War II. And when he graduated from high school, it was 1948, the world was at peace, and I, he, as he said, he didn't really have another plan, so he thought maybe he'd join the military, which seemed like probably it would be a pretty interesting career since the world was at peace and there was no signs of conflict on the horizon at all. By the time he went to Korea, he, as he says, he had finished jump school. He was a paratrooper. Jumping out of an airplane into a war zone, into a strange place, to just think about the, the courage, the guts that that would take. I said, what was the first time you, you jumped? What was that like? He said, the second time was worse because I knew what was going to happen. You know, it was very kind of self-deprecating, but, but we laughed a little bit at that. In October, we jumped behind enemy lines in North Korea, north of, north of their capital, Pyongyang. At that time, the, the war was going well for the, for the U.S. and the, the United Nations forces that were there. I was with a headquarters company and had been assigned as the assistant P&A platoon leader, which was the, the ammunition supply part of the, of the operation. The day after our jump, we got organized, captured some Korean trucks, and uh, occupied uh, some ground that was behind the lines of, of the infantry companies that, uh, that were out there in front of us. We presumed that we were in a rear area and fairly safe. In the middle of the night, we heard rattling and talking on a road that ran right by the position we were in. And someone decided we had to challenge whoever it was that was doing it. Well, it turned out they spoke a language we didn't understand and we didn't have any interpreters with us. But it, it developed that that was a unit of the North Korean army that was retreating north away from the infantry units that we were a part of. We were the headquarters company and these units were out, so supposedly out in front of us. It turned out that this rather large group was part of a, of a retreating North Korean uh, body. So they began to fan out in front of us, between us and those infantry units that we were identified or allied with. And uh, there was a big rice paddy in front of us. 
the Koreans fanned out in that rice paddy and and before long the shooting started. All of our troops were relatively inexperienced and this was probably two o'clock in the morning so most of them were asleep. I set out to try to run around and wake them up and tell them we were in a firefight. And on the way back to what I thought was cover, I got shot. My injury, though painful, was not life-threatening. It was in my left thigh. and uh, But I was, the cover I had was not deep enough for warfare. So, so let me see if I understand this. You're shot, and your cover is not deep enough, and the firefight is going on around you. Did you think you were going to survive that? I, uh, well, I think I think you you think you're going to survive it, but if you're smart, you realize maybe not. Well, one of the crazy things happened. Uh, we had uh, friendly jet planes who saw those Korean trucks down there and wanted to shoot them up. We had Air Force observers with us trying to tell them we're friendly. But a, a part of that challenge was that we we used panels at that time, colored panels laid out in a certain way to identify you who you were, and we did not have the correct uh, code. So uh, these guys uh, made about three or four passes trying to decide they shoot up those trucks. <laughs> oh. and, and of course, that was, that was a, a point of great uh, terror, I should say. Mm -hmm. If they would have shot up those trucks, you, we would not be having this conversation? Well, probably not, because if they'd have shot up the trucks, they might have also shot up the, the hillside. Any, mm -hmm. any uh, armament dropped uh, in a tree-covered hill mm -hmm. uh, would result in what they call tree bursts, and mm -hmm. tree bursts scatter the, over the ground with shrapnel. After the uh, the overnight incident, I suppose it was about I don't know ten or eleven o'clock the next morning when uh, a column of tanks came up the road and uh, and uh, all of a sudden they stopped about a mile more or less from our position. And we were kind of puzzled about that. They were stopped for about 20 minutes, and then they came clanking on back. By that time, we, we'd pretty well reduced the, uh, the, the, the gunfire, the problem with, uh, with the North Koreans. But <clears throat> when they arrived at our position, it turned out there it was a, a group of Australian tankers. And... Uh, the thing I remember about that is when we asked them why they had stopped, they said, I say, mate, it's about time for a spa tea. <laughs> and they had literally stopped to have tea. 
So, uh, and shortly after that, I was evacuated in a in a helicopter uh, to a MASH unit. The MASH units were first introduced in Korea. That stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospitals. And so it's on-site battlefield care. And it's really credited with reducing military deaths from combat wounds like by 50% compared to World War II. MASH was the name of a TV show and people of a certain age watched it every week and then it was in reruns and it was on every day. It was. It starred Alan Alda, the television show, and my research, I found out that he was actually a gunnery officer in Korea. It was exactly like that. Really? Alan Alda took care of you? No, I'm just kidding. No. In what way was it like like well, that? It was. It was an. It was a forward, advanced, uh, bunch of tents intended for the care of the of the wounded, and they stabilized the wounded and then we were I think loaded on a train went south to uh, I'm not sure where I went I I thought to Pusan but it seemed like that's a long way I was transported out to a hospital ship and do you feel like you got good medical care in that mass unit without a doubt because I I was the first officer in there, there were enlisted wards and officers' wards, and I was the first officer, and, and it was freshly commis- commissioned from the U.S., so every nurse on there hadn't seen a gunshot wound, every, so I had great care. <laughs> so. Were you in a lot of pain at the time? Well, I, I, sufficiently that it took my interest off most anything else. <laughs> <laughs> And what was the care like uh, on the ship? Well, it was it was excellent. We had we had well trained staff, and uh, I just I just can't think of anything that that didn't go well. Well, once they patched you up, then they did they send you back to to fight? Well. I think I was on that ship, a hospital ship, about six weeks, um, and at that time, rumors floating around were that the war was soon going to be over. The uh, the Marines were moving towards the the Yellow River, and and I didn't want to be left behind. The, the 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 rumor that I heard was that the paratroopers are going home among the earliest and uh, so I wanted to be a part of that and I talked the doctor into I was practically recovered but uh, I talked him into letting me go and so he sent me away with a few patches and a little medication and uh, by that time the the uh, units were north of, of the North Korean capital so I hitchhiked a ride uh, with a military plane going to Pyongyang, thinking that I could go from there to find my unit. Um, when we got to Pyongyang, uh, there were big clouds of smoke coming up all around the city. And 
as I learned later on, the Chinese had come into the war and the U.S. was in retreat and all those fires were the, or the, all that smoke was the result of fires burning uh, American equipment. So <clears throat> I was denied the chance to fly back out with the plane that had brought me in because they were taking wounded uh, out. So I hitched a ride going south with an engineer unit that was blowing bridges and, and uh, destroying uh, equipment. And I, I was with them for three or four days until I, I saw the uh, bumper markings of the 187th Airborne on a couple of Jeeps and realized that they were somewhere in the area. So I got off the, uh, out of the ride I was hitchhiking and, uh, and caught a ride to f go out and find my, uh, my unit, the, the 187th. You must have been well bonded to your fellow soldiers that you went through all that to get back back with them. Well, I I, I wanted to get back to the unit. I hadn't really bonded with anybody because I'd only been uh, in that headquarters unit about two weeks, and then it was wounded. So, uh, but I I wanted to be back with the unit. With, with the paratrooper unit. And so when I got back there, then I had to look for an assignment, find somebody that would give me a job. <laughs> so, and I did find him, and that would have been about uh, maybe just the beginning of the winter. But the U.S. Army was in, I, I can't say orderly retreat because for the for the first time, I think we uh, we were in a situation where we were up against a, an enemy that outnumbered us, and uh, and we were surprised at the ability and the, and the training of these uh, Chinese troops. Now, is this this bitterly, bitterly cold winter that I've heard about that you it's were coming up on? In the beginning of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, the, uh, in fact, we were, we were in into the winter. Uh, uh, the, the Marines and and other units had kind of rushed to be the first ones to reach the Yellow River. And so the, the Chinese came in, and they were, we were a road-bound army, and they were not. So they moved uh, under cover of darkness, but also off the roads. And so the, uh, the, the situation when I got back to the 187th was one of chaos. When we were put into action, it was a, we were the tip of a spear, a pretty concentrated effort. It was a period of great uncertainty and, and we went from 
believing that we were very soon going home to some of our leadership thinking that we were going to be driven back down to the Pusan perimeter. It, it, it isn't an example of the finest leadership. Uh, uh, we had been in retreat for the, the whole period of time from when the Chinese came in to the war. And we were, <clears throat> by that time, south of Seoul. We either had to establish a defense line there uh, or maybe retreat another 100 miles. The, the war at that time seemed as though it was going to be lost. Um, the commanding general of the 8th Army, some reports have said, believed that the war was going to be lost and we were going to be pushed into the sea. Interestingly enough, uh, he was racing down the road in his jeep and uh, a truck pulled out in front of his jeep and and uh, his jeep went in the ditch and rolled over and, and uh, he was killed. Mm. That may have been a, a critical turning point in the war because the, the general who came in to take his place did not believe for a minute that we were going to be pushed into the sea. And he, he uh, established uh, a line of defense that uh, he said we had, to, we had to hold. So what happened on your 21st birthday? Uh, we my company, my, the, my platoon, and others of that company were ordered to conduct one of the first night attacks, a, a counterattack against the Chinese. And we were, we were directed to do, to, to jump off to do that about the about four o'clock in the afternoon of the, of the 14th. And uh, we took that objective, I think by nine o'clock that night, my platoon was one of the uh, attacking platoons. The significant action, however, occurred starting about three o'clock in the morning when a force of somewhere we don't really know, maybe 800. My company commander and the assistant company commander were both wounded. The only surviving officer on our line of defense. And we had, uh, so we had quite a, quite a goal for about five or six hours. Little things sometimes alter the course of 
war or a particular battle. And one of the things that turned out to be good for us was our company commander made us leave our sleeping bags behind. Several occasions in the Korean War had occurred where troops to get out of the cold got into their sleeping bags when they were attacked in the middle of the night, uh, oftentimes shot or bayoneted in their in their bags because uh, on some occasions those zippers would freeze and he couldn't get out of the bag. So anyway, it was bitter cold. The weather was very much like it is in Minnesota. And I think on that particular night it was probably below zero. Not having any bag to jump in to keep warm, another way to keep warm was to keep digging. So getting those foxholes deeper. We took quite a few casualties. I I don't know how many, but we expended almost all the ammunition we we had. We were up close and personal with (laughs) the Chinese. And uh, at about 7 o'clock in the morning, they finally retreated people who observed that hill that night uh, commented on the on the fireworks display that they they saw because we had a lot of flares in order to see what was happening to us and so and it was in that as a result of that action that I was awarded the silver star he was getting ready to get out and he was contemplating staying in because he was an officer and there was some pomp and some perks that went with that. In the Army, I got used to uh, kind of living the good life, you know, the, the officer's club, the, mm-hmm. the recognition. It kind of fed my ego. So when I came home, uh, all, all of a sudden that was all gone. <laughs> uh, and I did really think about going back in. But But, he tells the story, he was with his parents, and they went to a dance hall. It was called The Terp, down by Austin, Minnesota, I believe. And he happened to meet a young woman there who was there with her parents, and that was his wife, Jan. We met there, and the rest is history. (laughs) Didn't want to go back in the service after all. They've had a wonderful life together. Five daughters, 21 grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren. How do you think uh, your time in the service uh, shaped or affected you and the rest of your life? Well, it made me more serious. It made me, uh, I think, appreciative of, of what we have. Mr. Overgaard was in the legislature, In the 60s and the 70s, he was both in the uh, House of Representatives and the state Senate. He wanted to do things for the state, for farmers, and for veterans. I don't know if if it dictated my my public service or not, but but it certainly uh, didn't dissuade me from 
running for the legislature and being active in politics. And so he continued his service that way. He never did go to college. Some from the Korean War that I spoke with got a chance to do the GI Bill. He came back and worked in manufacturing, then was in the legislature, then was a grain farmer. And then he became a financial planner, a financial advisor, kind of self-taught and quite successful at it and very satisfying in that way, too. So I think he was still able to serve other people by helping them have you know, financial independence and stability. Another form of service? Well, I suppose you could say that, yeah. I think that's something that people should do. I mean, live for something greater than, than yourself. Veterans Voices Korea is produced by Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund online at minnesotavets.org.